Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good afternoon, just about for those of you tuning in from the UK. Welcome to this Institute for Government event. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Joe Owen. I'm a programme director at the Institute for Government. I'm delighted we can bring you this conversation uh, today with Stéphane Derink, senior advisor to Michel Barnier and part of the EU's task force on relations with the UK. We are at yet another critical stage in the Brexit process. The fourth round of talks on the future relationship between the UK and the EU begin next week with the sides seemingly deadlocked. There's also a high level conference taking place in June that will take stock of progress. It's going to be probably the first time in a while where political leaders will take a break from the relentless focus of COVID and turn their attentions back to Brexit. And alongside that, by the end of June, the option to secure extra time as set out in the withdrawal agreement and extend the transition period will expire. So with these milestones approaching, where are things at? The UK has published its draft text showing the gaps that exist between the two sides. The UK has also published its plan for implementing the Northern Irish Protocol, the most contentious part of the withdrawal agreement. And I think it's fair to say there has been a pretty frank exchange of letters. So are the prospects for a deal dwindling? What does the EU make of the UK's latest documents? And do we think we need more time? We will be asking all of those questions and many, many more to Stefan over the course of the next hour. But before we start a bit of housekeeping, uh, the event is on the record. Please tweet along using the hashtag IFGBrexit. You can ask a question using the Q&A function and we will try to get through as many as possible. Please don't wait until the end to ask a question. Just fire them through as you go. And if you like questions that are already down, please uh, chuck them a thumbs up and we will make sure we try to get to them. Uh, and then finally, just to reassure you, if either of us get caught up in any technical issues, uh, which doesn't include me forgetting to unmute myself, uh, we have got IFGers on hand in the background who will ensure the show goes on. So, Stefan, thank you very much for joining us. Um, to start, why don't you sketch out what you think um, the state of play is in the negotiations? What is the agenda for this June conference that we're likely to see? And where are the kind of key stumbling blocks? Thank you, Joe. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you virtually instead of in the nice building behind Joe, but uh, <laughs> here we are. Um, where are we in the stumbling blocks in the June high-level conference? So I think if you look back, it's less than four months since the UK has now left the EU, 31st of January, right? And a lot has actually happened, even though you make reference to the risk of a stalemate or a deadlock that, that, that could come into the negotiations. Same time, if you take a bit of a step back, since since end of January, we had the mandate of, on the EU side, adopted by 27 countries, the European Parliament continued to be very supportive. We released a full text of a comprehensive text of the new relationship as we see it, as we see it reflected from our mandate on the 18th of March, just when the lockdown started here in, in Belgium, basically, after we had a first round of face-to-face -face negotiations. And as, so that gives us a really good basis to speed up work and, 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 and look at the things that need to be solved because our text is obviously not a take it or leave it text. And you made yourself reference to the UK having released text, which is a very positive step. I believe that was last week. With a different approach, obviously, because they see it sector by sector. So on both sides, we have made a lot of progress in terms of putting our texts on the table. In terms of the actual then interaction and negotiation, well, the stumbling blocks are known, level playing field, fisheries, the prerequisites for security cooperation, the overarching institutional architecture, and a lot of work will need to be done on those issues to make progress on all the issues and wrap up the negotiations this year, if that's possible. And it should be possible. We should work towards that. Um, your question on the high-level conference, it's a bit too early to say. We have round four next week of negotiations. 
Let's first see what happens in round four. We'll take stock on our side after round four. What purpose this meeting, this high-level meeting, can usefully play in the political declaration that we agreed with Boris Johnson at the time. It talks about defining actions to move the issues forward. And where we are today, I think there is indeed a, a huge need to move the issues forward. So before we, we dive into some of the kind of technical detail and some of the, the key kind of issue areas, I just wanted to get your view on the kind of state of the relationship, if you like. Um, we saw the letter from David Frost, uh, which certainly showed a more combative UK uh, than we've seen in the past. In his hearings in UK Parliament this week, David Frost talked about some unreasonable demands from the EU. I mean, what should we read into this in terms of the kind of tone and the temperature of the talks? Is this just a very different UK negotiating outfit to the one under Johnson, even under the withdrawal agreement? Um, or are kind of temperatures starting up or tension starting to fray? Well, first, I think the UK has always been combative in these negotiations from the very start. So during the withdrawal phase as well. Of course, the UK needs to look out for its own interest in this, and that's that's just normal. The letter did not contain anything that I had not heard said around the negotiation table. And so there was no surprise in terms of the contents of that letter. It was put out there to accompany the text that the UK published, which I, I said was a welcome, welcome step. The tone of conversations, the negotiations is very cordial and very, very friendly and very professional. So the letter was a little bit perplexing from that angle, if I can use a, a word that was used in the letter. <laughs> but Michel Barnier replied and then said, basically, I hope that we can just continue work based on, on mutual trust. As to our demands being unreasonable, which is what you put in your question, well, these are our demands. I mean, it's not no qualification the UK can put to them will change our demands. This is the mandate that the 27 have given us that the European Parliament supports. Michel Barnier had good discussions this week and the team had good discussions with the 27 and with the Parliament. And people rally just around that mandate, which was basically only adopted a couple months ago. So we need to find the space for compromise that is loyal to the mandate of the EU. That is what basically the challenge that lies ahead of us. And I think we will now come back to a situation where we focus on the negotiation weeks, the high-level conference and, and, and the negotiations that will follow from that and hopefully then make parallel progress on all the issues. So then coming back to kind of uh, one of the overarching positions from the UK, I mean, one of the key lines from the UK is it wants something off the shelf based on precedent, something that you've given to Canada or Japan. And if you kind of think back to the the, the famous uh, staircase diagram from phase one, the UK wants to kind of perch on the first step with a Canadian style deal. But Barnier has come back and said that actually the UK is asking for special treatment and is looking to go beyond precedent. Can you sketch out for some of the most contentious areas and where the UK is actually asking for special treatment beyond uh, the kind of standard FTA Canadian Japan style deals? Well, the UK will always be special to us, huh? so that's the uh, first thing to say. Very close neighbour, <laughs> ally, friends, so and ex-member of a, of the EU. So there is no doubt that there is a kind of a special issue that is at play there. And before coming to, indeed, I think your question is very valid. I think that narrative that is being said that we're not asking for anything that the EU doesn't give to other countries. Uh, is not an, is not correct in terms of what we see in the negotiations. But before coming to that, I should also say that what, something we have said since 2017, every free trade agreement is tailor-made to the country that, with whom we are negotiating. We have our economic structures. In this case, you have the proximity issue, the, so the geographic distance, which is very important, the interconnectedness. What we discussed with Mexico is not South Korea, is not Japan, is not Canada. And, UK cannot just say, I want a little bit of Canada, a little bit of Mexico, a little bit of South Korea, a little bit of Japan on the side, so to say. That's, that's not how it works. And as Michel Barney said in the letter, there's no automatic entitlement that a third country can claim to say, you've given this to, to that country, you need to give it to us too. Uh, and there used to be a time actually when the, the UK public debate would welcome the fact that we said every FDA is tailor-made because then 
it fueled the hope there would be a bespoke arrangement. Now it seems to be like this tailor-made is, is no longer something that the UK public debate actually welcomes in terms of how we, how we, how we go about this. Just the specifics of your question, well, let's take professional qualifications as one example, and David Frost mentioned it also yesterday in the House of Lords, I believe, uh, with Michael Gove. Free movement of services will stop, free movement of people will stop. That's the UK leaving the single market. The whole system we have in the EU on professional qualifications is, of course, something that accompanies the free movement of people and the free movement of service providers. And the UK basically says, well, there we would like to stick to existing arrangements, like it does also in energy. It asks a voice, more than a voice, a binding procedure for the case where the EU would withdraw equivalents on financial services, which are unilateral decisions that the EU takes. And we have never shared such a decision-making procedure with a third country that gets equivalents from us unilaterally. The UK is asking for service providers to come here for short-term stays and get free movement, which is not something that is usually part of a free trade agreement we have with third countries. Uh, the UK is asking a kind of a single market treatment for its audit firms, a single market for legal services based more almost on the country of origin principle. Therefore, recognized professionals in the UK can just offer their services in the single market. The country of origin principle is a founding stone of the single market and it works because we are in the ecosystem of the single market. So there are a few examples there where UK is clearly asking for a lot more than Canada. Obviously, on road transport, it's asking for a lot more because of its proximity. On security cooperation and law enforcement, again, it says we're going to stop free movement, we're going to stay outside of Schengen, but we want access in real time to the Schengen information system. So there's a lot more than just the standard third country treatment that, that, we, that we have, with, and which in any case, as I said, my initial way of answering your question doesn't exist because each third country we have tailor-made arrangements with them. And what about some of the areas where the UK, where the EU is not kind of, or seems unwilling to even go to a relatively standard ask in terms of ambition? And there's a question that's just come in from Richard Phillips, uh, who particularly points out the mutual, mutual recognition of conformity assessment bodies. Um, and his question is, what appetite do you think there is on the EU side to move its position on that, where it's stated out quite a hard-line position to date? There's very few appetite. And it's actually also an interesting example, because then the UK sometimes comes back to Canada as a precedent. But there's a big difference there between the Canadian system and the American system and what we have in the single market and with the UK today. Canada often requires third-party certificates for a number of issues in the electrical safety and other kind of sectors. Whereas in the EU, including with the UK today, we rely on self-declaration of conformity. Of course, with a framework where standards converge. And so we don't have that system that Canada has, and therefore the, the situations are not that comparable. We never given to a third country such a wide set of sectorial annexes in terms of technical barriers to trade. And the starting point for the system will be, well, the UK leaves the single market, so it's a separate jurisdiction and there's regulatory cooperation on a voluntary basis. And so the, I think that the question is also interesting in terms of this precedent narrative, because the Canadian system of conformity assessment is different from what we have in the UK and, and in the EU more broadly. Turning then to kind of um, the, the, the juicier issue on kind of level playing field, um, the UK government's position in its draft text is that all of its proposals are based on EU precedent and that the demands set out um, by the EU, and I think this is a quote from David Frost's letter, are not something that any de democratic country could sign. I mean, that seems like we are pretty far apart. Is there a kind of landing zone that exists technically for the two sides if they wanted to move, do you think? First, to the more general question, of course, it's a democratic decision to sign up to such commitments. It's something you negotiate from government to, to the EU, and it's something you ratify uh, as UK Parliament and as European Parliament. So there is a democratic moment where these commitments are basically accepted. And I think we need to move beyond the kind of idea that signing up to international commitments that are legally binding would, would have some kind of threat to national democracy. I mean, we fully respect that the UK 
has left and is a sovereign country in terms of the EU regulatory orbit. So it's up to the UK to see what it what it can agree to. But stressing the sovereignty is a lot is something we hear a lot. But what we should engage with is what are the legally binding commitments we're willing to undertake on which we will then build a close economic partnership. I think it's time to start demystifying a bit of these level playing field issues. Because if you look at the social environmental standards, climate change issues, what we're basically saying to the UK and what we have agreed with the UK actually in, in the political declaration that Boris Johnson had agreed to that the House of Commons ratified as part of the withdrawal agreement where it is referred to, is to say, well, we have common standards at the end of transition, social protection, company restructuring, workers' rights, uh, environmental protection, air emission, industrial emissions, environmental impact assessment, climate change, carbon pricing, the scope of carbon pricing and all the rest of it. So these things will be by definition the same on the EU and the UK side at the end of 2020. And the UK tells us we're not going to go lower, we're only going to go higher. So it seems to me that if that is indeed the political starting point and the starting point of principle on both sides, that it must be possible then to discuss the standards in more detail, to discuss the enforcement of those standards in more detail, enforcement nationally, but also dispute settlement in the agreement, and to discuss also how these standards will evolve over time, and perhaps over time move from the common floor at the end of 2020 to a new higher floor later on, which is also something that we have proposed. I think on taxation matters, the political declaration referred to relevant tax matters and our mandate is very clear on transparency, exchange of information, cross-border tax planning, those kind of issues, where the UK makes a lot of, um, talks a lot about is the state aid issue where, where the EU is certainly asking for a lot in terms of dynamic alignment. Of course, state aid is somewhat different because state aid is as we saw with the COVID crisis, you need to be adaptable, you need to be flexible, you need to adapt to new circumstances. It's, it's different from this whole non-regression discussion that we have in the social environmental sphere. Again, I think we need to, the UK is basically saying today we have the Geneva WTO system of anti-subsidies. That's, first of all, that's old, old, a couple of decades, I think, or 20 years, or, and, and so it's not fit for standards today. And so, and, and secondly, the EU is asking for a lot on state aid, there's no doubt about that, because member states are very concerned and the EU industry is very concerned. And therefore, there, we need to find ways forward on the regulatory approach also on state aid issues. Otherwise, we will not basically be able to conclude the deal. In, um, in Barnier's response to Frost in the kind of exchange of letters, uh, I think there's a point where he says that the UK would not need to be bound by EU law in areas of level playing field beyond the end of the transition period. I mean, does that reflect a softening in the EU position around state aid or is the ask still continued application of EU law? And then there's a question that has come through, um, which is, can you explain how the EU is not cherry picking by requiring the UK to stay locked into its entire body of state aid rules with EU jurisdiction included? But we are offering generous market access, first of all. Uh, we're, we're offering to a country that exports a lot in terms of goods and products manufacturing to the single market. And it's only natural, I think, that we then look at the production costs behind that and say, if we're going to do that, if we're going to give you zero tariff, zero quota access, which the UK confirmed in round three at once, which was comforting for us after some of the statements that were made earlier in the UK. So if you're going to give zero tariff, zero quota access, we certainly need to frame that with robust level playing field guarantees. There is, there is no question about that. Even if it wouldn't be zero tariff, zero quota access, which we would personally not want, even then you would need robust level playing fields in terms of access to our market. And again, the UK is not saying we want to undercut you. So the UK is saying it's not a question of substantive disagreement so much as a political disagreement as of what we can sign up to as legally binding commitments. But we will have to cross that hurdle in terms of accepting legally binding commitments because that's what the construction of international law is about. That's what we're doing with the UK in terms of trying to conclude an agreement on the future relationship. And on just the last point on level playing field before we move on to uh, everyone's favourite topic of fisheries, um, is there a reason why um, the EU wants the kind of, particularly on state aid, the upfront commitments 
to align to rules and would not be reassured by having kind of sufficient trade defence measures, if you like. So why not say we will have we will trust you that you will not unfairly subsidise and we have got a robust mechanism for um, kind of retribution if you do start to unfairly subsidise business. So why why not kind of instead of shifting from alignment to rules, why is there no kind of reassurance that actually having the right um, dispute settlement in place and trade defence measures that won't assuage member states' fears? Mm. That, that, that's actually a very good question because it goes to the heart of what we're trying to construct here. So we're trying to construct a close economic partnership. We're not trying to construct a partnership that is then subject to constant disputes later on, which is also why we reject a kind of a sector by sector approach with different agreements, which is why we want an overarching governance structure for the new agreement. And which is why we want to agree also upfront on what the level playing field conditions are, rather than push it down the line and say, well, well, we'll deal with that later on. In terms of having a stable partnership, that stands the test of time. I think it's better to have the difficult discussions now on level playing fields rather than postpone them to trade defense or other kinds of countervailing measures that you may then take later on. Yeah. So it's best to prevent rather than to cure later on, I think. And just to come back to again to state aid, when, when I talk or when we talk in the negotiation team with EU industry, it is a top priority for the EU industry, especially in those countries that are exposed a lot to the UK's economy, that on state aid there must be a robust level playing field guarantees. It, it is the top concern of many of the industrialists and on the EU27 side. Okay, so moving on to, to fisheries and we've got a question actually in from Lisa O'Carroll from The Guardian, um, which is David Frost said uh, this week that he did not think he could get a fisheries agreement by the 30th of June. Is that your reading and what happens to negotiations if that is the case, given the EU said wider FTA is contingent on a fishing deal? Well, let's see what round four brings. I mean, in round three, there were some timid openings on both sides. Both sides have maximalist positions clearly on fisheries. Um, we need to see how the UK will use zonal attachment, how it wants to use that, and how other criteria come into play there. I think it's time that we on fisheries get more into the actual granular discussions also on, on stocks, on quotas, on access to waters, uh, and see where the, where the landing zone is on that. It would be, I would be surprised indeed if we get to an agreement by the end of June, but it is not excluded, but it is a, it is, it is a tall order, clearly, because we are, we're nearly June. Um, next week, we're the 1st of June. Um, and that means we have round four and perhaps another round of negotiations in June. So that would indeed, that is indeed a very tall order. For us, it's, what is absolutely clear is that what we need is stability over time uh, and a fisheries agreement, which is, which is an integral part of the economic partnership, so which is a part of the single agreement we are trying to construct with the UK. And again, there, there is a fundamental difference of approach there because the UK rejects that approach that it, and wants a separate self-standing fisheries agreement, which we do not want. We see fisheries as an integral part of the economic partnership. And we've always said, if there's no agreement on fisheries, there's no economic partnership. So that's basically, basically where we stand. And on, um, on the question of fish, we could see through the kind of mandate setting process on the EU side that member states toughened up the Commission's first initial draft uh, mandate on fisheries. I mean, are we now getting to the point where um, Barnier may have to go back to member states to ask for permission to move from that maximalist position set out in the EU mandate? Or does that still hold in line with what you were saying around state aid, that the, the position is still the position and it's it's not looking to change anytime soon? No, the, the, the position is the position indeed. So we, we need, but we also know that we need to find a, the, the space for compromise. And we respect the fact that the UK says we're an independent coastal state. And therefore, and with all the constraints on our side that, that that brings with it. But there are of course a number of other issues that needs to be discussed. There is the 
overall economic partnership, there's the historic rights, there's the international law that plays into this, with the duty for conservation and all the rest of it. So there, there are a number of shared challenges there that we cannot get away from. So we'll have to start discussing those in a more granular manner compared to what we have done so far. And then the last, uh, the last question, um, kind of linked to that on um, on fisheries and actually the agreement more widely. Um, it, I think Frost said again this week that um, that looking at the EU mandate as it stood, it looked very difficult to see where a deal could be done. I mean, do you think it is the case that? Um, the mandates as they stand are incompatible and is there a potential that the EU may have to look at revising its mandate later down the line or can actually any of this flexibility that you talked about be found without having to go through the process of revising a mandate? I don't think there's any appetite on the EU side to revise a mandate and I think from the member state side there's a lot of trust in the Commission and in its negotiating team if I may say so to deliver something that is acceptable within that mandate. So I think we need to continue working. As I said, round three, there was some kind of, not rapprochement really, but some kind of timid openings on both sides. And we need to see if that is confirmed next week. And then we need to take stock with member states, as we always do after the round four, to see where we, where we take it next. Michel Bani had an informal conversation this week with 11 fisheries ministers. A bit unusual, but usually we work with the 27, obviously, but this is an issue that is of interest to a 8, 9, 10, 11 member states. And he had a very good exchange of views, but clearly we, we need to stay within the mandate that we have and find the space for compromise in that mandate. Okay, so just a couple of quick more questions on kind of the negotiations and want to just pick up both on governance and um, security. But then I can see lots of questions coming through on um, the Irish protocol and in particular the question of transition extension. Uh, so uh, rest assured we will get to both of those. Um, but very quickly on um, governance. Um, I'm just wondering what your view on the kind of state of play is on this and whether actually a single agreement really is a red line or one of the things the EU is just hoping to avoid is a kind of proliferation of smaller deals. And then just very quickly added on to that, um, Robin Niblett has sent in a question um, asking, to, uh, asking for you to explain in more detail the EU's approach to dispute settlement. Um, do you foresee scope for independent arbitration in cases where the bilateral committee cannot agree, um, understanding that the ECJ will initially determine whether it believes the UK is abiding by its commitments? Sorry, two quite meaty questions there. One on governance, is it a red line for a single agreement? And then the second, dispute settlement. Can you explain the approach a little more? I remember very well in December 17, I had a conversation with Robin Niblett, which was after the first public event I did in London, which was at your institute, where I had said every free trade agreement is tailor-made, and it led to a quite a bit of a stir on the UK side. And a welcome, <laughs> welcome opening to a bespoke agreement, <laughs> as we discussed many times under the Theresa May government. So, hello to Robin. <laughs> um, on the governance, Yes, it is absolutely, it is something we have agreed, by the way, in the political declaration, an overarching governance agreement. I would think we certainly, we must avoid a proliferation of sector-based committees. One can, of course, see how the UK would be interested in working sector by sector to reproduce sector by sector a number of benefits of the single market. We can also see the efficiency of, um, of a single governance structure. And for us, it's also a strategic question, because if you have an overarching structure with a partnership council, as our mandate says, this relationship could evolve over time. And if you have that overarching structure, it's much more easier to have a strategic development over time of our relationship with the UK as EU than when you work with a proliferation of committees on aviation, energy, fisheries, and, and all the rest of it. I mean, that seems to be a very unwieldy and inefficient kind of system, but also politically, from a political strategy perspective and for for us Europeans, so to say, uh, a mistake. We're much better to have an overarching partnership council that sees all the, the links between the different sectors. And on the EU side, it's a clear, uh, clearly that we need links between the different sectors. 
And that links them to the dispute settlement mechanism where we need to have ways of cross-retaliation in case further down the line, the UK would uh, violate certain obligations in certain sectors and vice versa, of course, if, in case the EU would, would do that, then the UK would have that as an instrument at its disposal. So yes, the overarching governance structure is, is a fundamental point for us, together with level playing field, fisheries and the prerequisites for security cooperation on protection of fundamental rights and human rights. On Robin Niblet's question on dispute settlement, basically we're looking at a system which is akin to what we have in the withdrawal agreement. With, of course, a role for the Court of Justice in case the two parties would decide to rely on concepts of union law, which we think is in a number of fields where we have a particularly close relationship would be a useful thing to do, but the UK is clearly is on, a, is on a different line and we need to see how, how we can agree on that. But there is an overarching dispute settlement mechanism which we have proposed, which is part of the overarching governance structure that, that we just uh, discussed. And on to security, which you mentioned kind of briefly uh, in there before we before we move on to transition extension. Um, where are things at in the security relationship? I mean, is it the case that um, the security relationship is being held back by the questions of overarching commitments or has it been an area where both sides have been able to make progress in the negotiations? I think it's a bit like in the, the economic partnership discussion where we we can see a number of landing zones on new on, on instruments uh, for security cooperation on what used to be extradition which will become surrender on different issues of security cooperation data exchanges and those kind of issues but it blocks on the fundamental prerequisites which we had agreed again with with the johnson government political declaration including the continued adherence to the European Convention of Human Rights and the domestic effect, uh, giving domestic effect to that in UK law, which is a prerequisite for uh, the security cooperation. The data adequacy and data protection issues are also very important in this context. I was a little bit surprised that the UK on the passenger name records at the last session asked us basically to deviate from the jurisprudence of the court uh, in the Canada EU case where um, the court put some extra requirements on privacy and data protection for passenger name records for people leaving from the EU flying into Canada, and we need to respect that. And we want to respect that, obviously. So there are indeed a number of overarching or prerequisites or stumbling blocks that, that prohibit us from making progress on a number of the new instruments on security cooperation we need to create. But there is also an issue of, um, well, what we used to call have your cake and eat it. Um, Michel Barnier used a, was on the German radio, used an expression in German I never heard of, that you can't dance at the same time at two wedding parties. And I'm not sure if that refers to the guests or the couple, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's an issue of, you know, we're leaving Schengen, we're, we're never in part of Schengen, we're leaving free movement of people, but we still want the Schengen information system. And of course, these things don't square, the real-time access to all the data, and these things don't square for us. So there's also beyond the prerequisites, real issues still on the instruments that we will want to create that need to be fleshed out uh, between the EU and the UK. So we've heard then about you know real issues just then that need to still be fleshed out, the amount of depth that still needs to be got into. This question of is there enough time and um, transition extension. Um, so far the EU has kind of repeated many times that it's open to the idea of an extension under the withdrawal agreement but has stopped short of actually saying it thinks more time is necessary. Is it fair characterization to say that the EU thinks more time would be valuable, that we would be able to achieve more in more time? Well, we have seven months left and huge challenges. The future relationship, as you can feel and hear from what I say, there's a couple of tough nuts that need to be cracked still in, in in the economic and security partnership and in the governance. There is the protocol on which we will come to uh, in a moment, I guess, given what you said earlier, the protocol on Northern Ireland, which needs to be implemented and ready to be implemented by the 1st of January, which is again, seven months from now. It, if there's a need for more time, it needs to be decided jointly. And so we have said, we're certainly open for that. 
my personal assessment with also the COVID crisis is we need to get, of course, to the economic recovery of what will be a massive challenge. Is it wise to end the transition at the end of this year? It's an open question, but certainly on the EU side, you have said we're open uh, for, um, for an extension. I mean, David Frost, when he gave a speech here at the ULB, uh, said basically acknowledged that you know, the end of transition will be a negative economic situation, will, will, will generate negative economic effects short term. Well, is, is this the right time to do it? It's not in our hands. We need to be, need to be two to tango, as they say. So we're certainly open to, to discuss an extension of transition. It's a relatively easy decision to take if you agree on the duration and the lump sum. Uh, here in the UK, sometimes people say, but what about the liabilities? Is new budget, the Eurozone, the, the solidarity that is being created between the countries of the Eurozone or the EU? It's a lump sum that needs to be decided in June. It won't change afterwards. That's going to reassure people. The financial contribution is settled in, in the single decision that we need to take on the extension of transition. But we need to start talking about this soon, if that is what the UK would want. Just I wanted to bring in a question that's come through from Raphael Baer on this point. Um, and he's said that two political obstacles for the UK to extension are budget contributions, which made politically harder by the spectre of the UK being drawn into COVID related bailout. Uh, and the other obstacle is rule taking. Um, given that sovereignty is an issue as an issue is much harder to resolve in the time available. Um, but could the EU side be more flexible on money? And I guess kind of related to that, do you think this concern about being dragged in, the UK being dragged into COVID-related bailouts is a legitimate concern? Um, and are there things that you could do to put guarantees against it? There are two things I would say to that. Uh, for, no, it's not a legitimate concern because the withdrawal agreement is very clear. We need to define the lump sum in June. And so once that lump sum is defined, for the duration of one or two years or up to one or two years. That's it, basically. No matter what then happens on the EU side with MFF and new budget and recovery and new instruments that also the Commission has proposed yesterday, the day before yesterday, that's no longer something the UK would have to lie awake at night for, for, for such issues. So there's no, there will be no surprises beyond the financial contribution agreed in June if we were to go for a joint decision to, to extend the transition. The second thing I would say to that is that on the rule taking, there's not much we can do. So it's a trade off. Can the UK still accept to be a rule taker for an extra period? That's something the UK needs to decide in the bigger trade off of where are we in the negotiations? What about COVID? Is this in our interest or not? As UK to ask for an extension of transition. What I would say though is the extension of transition is somewhat the transition period. If there were to be one from January 21 will be different in terms of the budget. Because what we have foreseen in the withdrawal agreement is that the UK no longer participates in the next budget. And so if there is an extension of transition, let's say for 21, during that period for programs like Horizon or Erasmus, the UK will have to participate as a third country in those programs if it wants to participate in those programs. So it will no longer be bound by budget issues like own resources and, and spending decisions of, of, of the EU um, because of what we have foreseen in the withdrawal agreement. And so could it could the UK say we don't want to be part of um, we don't want to be part of EU programs like the New Horizon program and actually we're not interested in uh, common agricultural policy in the new program that's agreed by the end of the year. And could we therefore end up with much, much smaller budgetary contributions beyond the end of the year um, if that's what was agreed through these conversations in the next month or so, notwithstanding the UK's position that it's adamant it's not going to extend? Yes, again, we um, we need to respect the UK's decision. It's a joint, it's a joint decision. We can't, you know, the extension of transition depends on the UK. Uh, and the position will need to become clearer very soon if the UK would want to change its current position, which I'm not speculating about, I'm not accept, expecting, but it's okay, since we're discussing this, uh, to, to come to your question then, in 21, clearly the UK will not be in the common agricultural policy. Uh, that's clear. The UK wants to be in Horizon, so that's a bit different. I mean, it has expressed an interest in the negotiations 
in the work stream on union programs of the future to be in Horizon and in Erasmus and a limited number of other programs. But then its contribution to Horizon, if it wants to, if, if we find an agreement between the EU and the UK to have the participation of the UK in Horizon, will have to be defined in that decision, in the international agreement, basically, between the EU and the UK. It's no longer part of the, the EU budget framework, which is between the 27 going forward from, from January 21. So you're asking me basically what would the lump sum be, right? <laughs> I can't tell you that. <laughs> would it be much, or could but, it be much smaller? But the parameters are rather generally defined in the withdrawal agreement. Let's leave it at that perhaps. Okay. Um, the next question on, on transition extension I wanted to come to you is one that's come through from Dennis McShane um, saying that uh, Jean-Claude Piris insists that EU law insists on a final decision for an extension by the end of June. Um, but much comment in London says it will all happen in October. Is Piris wrong? And on that point, the IFG has got a paper that will be coming out tomorrow morning looking at the uh, the options for extra time. So we'll be listening to Stefan's answer with interest. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I won't spoil your weekend. <laughs> um, well, as we say here, Article 50 is exhausted as a legal basis. Article 50 of the treaty, which under which you have negotiated the withdrawal agreement, uh, speaks about negotiating with a withdrawing member state, right? The, the member state which has notified the EU of its intention to withdraw. The UK has now become a third country. So that article is no longer applicable because the UK is no longer a withdrawing member state. It has basically left and it has become a third country. So Piris is absolutely right in that sense. Um, well, I've, I've seen the tweets. I haven't seen the the whole paper, so maybe I shouldn't speak so forcefully. I think what I've seen in the tweets indeed is Article 50 needs to be done. The, the decision to extend transition needs to be done by the end of June, 1st of July. Otherwise, there is no extension of transition. And then you look at a situation of disruption on the 1st of January without an agreement on the future for which we need to prepare. Or you look at a situation where we agree the future in September, October, November, with very little time to prepare, in which case I would also expect quite a bit of disruption on the 1st of January, because the future relationship would just have been agreed uh, shortly before that date. And what, there's, a, there's a question that's also come in on this point from Lloyd uh, Mulkerin from SMMT, um, which I think is asking whether the EU27 would be open to agreeing a preparation period post deal being negotiated, um, presumably in which you could use the new deal as the kind of legal basis um, that would give time as a kind of status quo uh, to allow businesses to adapt. So how do you avoid, I guess, the scenario where a deal gets done at the very last minute in kind of October, November, it's ratified right up till the final minute in uh, December, and then all of a sudden businesses need to adjust to this big 1,000 page plus trade agreement uh, on New Year's Eve. Is there a way to guard right. against that if we don't extend by, by the end of June? The question comes from the Car Manufacturing Association from what I understood right well. We have issued preparedness notices two, three years ago on this issue. So if you are a car manufacturer in the UK, you already know more or less what you will need to do by the 1st of January. Your car type approvals need to happen in the EU. Noise, safety, em CO2 emissions, all the rest of it, you will need to abide by EU standards. There are a couple of uncertainties which you're still confronted with today. What will be the rules of origin? Will there be zero tariffs indeed? I hope there will be. Uh, there will be rules of origin for sure the way we have proposed it within the free trade area that we want to create with the UK. So that kind of rules of origin, which is, I think, is in our interest as EU block here. And so for the car manufacturing, the preparation has happened in the past, I would guess, with the no deal and will need to happen again. Um, so I don't think we, we will want to invent new systems of preparation or you will just have to be ready to implement a future relationship on the 1st of January. Busy Christmas uh, then. Um, so just want to move on to talking of implementing things ready for the 1st of January, moving on to implementing the withdrawal agreement and specifically, I guess, to start the um, 
the Irish protocol. Uh, again, on this topic, I think last weekend it was, uh, the weeks were starting to blur into one, um, the IFG published a report on implementing the Irish protocol that discusses uh, uh, lots of these challenges. But I guess to start, what was your response to the UK's paper on progress that came out last week? How did that go down in the EU? Well, I think it's an important paper. You refer to it as the command paper from from the UK. I mean, we read your paper too, but you read that paper also with, with, with very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think it can unlock a process uh, because so far what we heard from the UK was we will abide by all the legal obligations that we have signed up to without getting all that much details. Uh, and we also heard some worrying more worrying political signals in the past on no checks and no customs. And so that seems to be behind us now. Uh, and that's why I say it, it could unlock a, a constructive process, although there is very little time to put in place the operational details. I think what was also very positive about it is that it is clear that that paper is fully in line with the legal obligations that the UK has signed up to in the protocol. Where I would be a little bit more concerned is two issues, I think. One is the, the presentational aspect. Uh, if you read the protocol, it says EU tariffs apply GB to NI unless the joint committee can agree that certain end products are not at risk of entering the single market. I think it's important to be frank and clear about that to an ordinary Irish business, that this is what they need to prepare for. Now, the paper presents it somewhat differently. I can understand that the UK wants to present it somewhat differently, but it's also a question, and to what extent does that help the preparedness of Northern Irish business uh, in terms of that kind of that, that style of presentation, so to say. And the second thing is that we're still a bit hungry for more operational details. I mean, it's clear and the aspiration is there in the paper, and that's very positive, but we need to move now very, very quickly to you know, how will the customs work? How will the SPS checks work? How will the VAT system work? What's the IT system that's going to be behind it? What's the staff that's going to be behind it? How are the procedures going to work? I think all of that is, is still a lot of work to be done. We ourselves issued a technical note on April 30th, which basically lists the issues that needs to be done for the implementation of the protocol. There's a joint committee on June the 12th, I believe, so the next one. So we are very busy now with our UK colleagues to prepare that and to, to work on that. Um, so, so yeah, that's, um, that's where we are. And on, uh, on the kind of the need for more operational detail, I'm interested kind of when this deal was agreed, the protocol, if we go back to October last year, at which point it was kind of what, 14 months until the transition period would end. And then we had the further extension until January, mm -hmm. uh, where of course the we had the general election, the deal went through, but then, you know, was there no point in that period where the EU thought, hang on, we're asking, uh, this deal includes a brand new border or border requirements where there currently is none and a pretty unprecedented border at that. Do we really think that the UK is going to be able to do this by the 1st of January 2021 and did you get assurances from the UK side on the operational detail before you signed up to this? Well what we discussed in great detail is all the nature of all the legal obligations the UK signed up to and what was a bit surprising for us that these things came back into the debate afterwards. So to give you a few examples we discussed that exit declarations of course will be needed from NI to GB. Uh, we discussed that at length, all the different, I remember sessions, but all the different customs formalities were, were being discussed. We discussed that we cannot deviate from the union's customs code. We can, of course, use the flexibilities that are, that exist between, within the union's customs code, but we cannot derogate or deviate from it. And again, the command paper is positive in the sense that it doesn't ask to derogate or deviate from it. The Joint Committee can, of course, look at that and, and, and within the Customs Code there are flexibilities and there are a number of issues in the command paper that seize on those flexibilities. But the devil is in the detail, obviously. We, we need to, the, the paper says about customs infrastructure, number of issues. Well, let's discuss that with the UK, what 
what it means, what is the operational basis to to say a number of to make a number of claims on customs infrastructure and how that will work. Obviously, the customs code of the EU allows for checks at premises, allows for technology for different issues that Barnier used to call the de-dematerialized checks, basically. And we can look at that, and we will want to look at that over over the next months. And so there's a, sorry, there's a question that's just come in, uh, which I think is a response to your the point that you made on the um, the UK paper um, and the command paper, which is um, whether the statement in the paper about there being no need for export procedures for goods going NI to GB is that in line with EU law and, and the UCC? And then the other area um, it's interesting, I guess, to pick up on was the the UK command paper talked about. Um, goods that go from GB into NI for commercial processing that were intended to go back then to UK uh, would not be covered um, by tariffs because self-evidently a good being sent from the single market, sent away from the single market, can't be a backdoor into it. I mean, were those two of the areas that flagged up a bit of concern or were you actually relatively relaxed about all of the um, creative suggestions in, in the command paper around what's available within the EU rules? Well, again, the command paper is a positive step. And so, we, and if there is scope for creativity, but it has to be within the parameters of EU law, it can never deviate from that. So in terms of export procedures, there's a lot of issues behind that. So we need to look at what that is in terms of GB to NI commercial processing, if it gets to NI commercial processing, then you're in a different situation. And the protocol has been very clear that issues of commercial processing are subject to the treatment that the protocol foresees. Okay, so moving moving on from the protocol and the other issue around um, implementing the withdrawal agreement um, is citizens' rights. And there's been a lot of focus in the UK side on the progress for settled status, but we also saw recently Michael Gove uh, writing to the EU around concerns with EU's progress and member state progress on securing the rights of UK citizens in Europe. I mean, where's what's your view of where that is up to? Have we got any idea on numbers and have all member states launched their schemes, for example? Right. No, there, we are also as Commission looking at that. And, um, I mean, there are roughly half of the member states have a declaratory system, which means that the British nationals in those countries do not need to do any specific demarche or take any specific step. I think there are 13 that have chosen for the constitutive system, which is the system also the UK has chosen. Um, of course, the volumes of people that have to be processed, if I can put it like that, or the volumes of people have to be treated or have to be uh, assessed for residency status is much smaller compared to what the Home Office faces. Um, under the withdrawal agreement, member states can still do this after the end of transition periods. But we on the Commission side are working with those 13 to make sure that they start giving the UK nationals in their country the, the possibility to start doing the steps they need to take to obtain the, the status of residency in, in their host country. We have issued a uniform residence document as Commission and we have issued guidance last week, I think, in all languages to the public administrations of the member states on how this would work. We are taking advantage of bilateral meetings with member states or collective meetings with member states to raise those issues. It's, of course, also our role as Commission to make sure that all member states implement the withdrawal agreements correctly. I can understand that British nationals sometimes have situations of anxiety in those countries where the system hasn't kicked off yet. Now, legally, that's fine under the withdrawal agreement. But again, we're working with the member states to make sure that people feel accommodated by, by their host country and that they can indeed start uh, doing what, what needs to be done. In most cases, I think this will be face-to-face -face meetings, by the way not like in the, the app-based system that the Home Office designed because of the 3 million plus. In many cases, we talk about a couple 10,000 people in one country or perhaps more than 100,000 British people in other countries. Depends a bit on, on which country you're talking about. But we're following that very, very closely. And yeah, if your kind of actions so far are about chivying and trying to nudge member states along and offering guidance and support, I mean, as you say, the, the, the Commission um, is and the EU is on the hook for the um, agreement 
and the, the, the ensuring the implementation of the provisions of the withdrawal agreement. I mean, what are the kind of um, stronger actions and levers that you've got available if we get to kind of November time and it's still worrying? What What is available to the Commission to try and kind of drive progress more than just trying to encourage it, if you like? But November was still a transition period and member states do not have the legal obligation then. So the, in terms of, I don't expect that. I think all member states will, will implement the withdrawal agreement correctly and, and they all want to be correct to the UK nationals which have rights in their home, in, in their country. So of course we, we can look at infringement procedures down the line once we're beyond the transition, but uh, I don't think we will ever get to that phase. I mean, we're in a very constructive relationship with all member states uh, so I don't see any member state who who would pose a problem at this stage, but we'll assess it again in November, no doubt. But in terms of the instruments that we have available, um, this is then for a later stage. Until the end of transition, free movement applies. So in case British nationals today want to move to an EU country and they feel violated in their rights of free movement, of course, they can file a complaint with the commissioner, with national authorities or with a judge or, or what have you. And then we will also look at that in the context of the correct application of EU law till the end of transition by all member states, where British nationals need to be treated like any other EU national in terms of free movement. And then um, I want to move on to no deal and the prospect of no deal. Uh, I'm conscious of uh, limited time available and apologise to everyone whose questions uh, I haven't got to yet. Um, but the prospect of no deal, and there's a question that's come through from Seb Dance, which is, to what extent would disruption from a no deal on the 1st of January differ to the macro effects of unemployment, GDP, etc., from COVID-19? Would they be distinguishable? And I guess the broader question for you, of actually, with this much looser relationship between the UK and the EU um, than was kind of envisaged under the May government, is there a big difference for the EU between deal and no deal? Yes, there is. Politically, because we're talking about economic partnership, but a lot more issues than just the economic partnership. Because you start with a new partnership, it can then evolve over time. That's also an important issue to, to note. Uh, I think also economically, it is true that uh, an FTA in terms of economic impact comes closer to no deal compared to a, a single market style of relationship like Norway has. Um, but, um, yeah, but, but so I think it's something we, we, we certainly will want to avoid because if you look at one of the core issues that we want to hold on to is the zero tariff, zero quotas. And if you get to a no deal, the UK publishes NFN tariffs very, very recently. That would be the tariffs that apply then between the EU and the UK in the case of a no deal. And it would be very, very disruptive. It would be disruptive for those Brexit advocates who had said that Brexit will mean cheaper food. <laughs> it will also be disruptive for EU agriculture in terms of exports. So it will be disruptive for both sides. And it's certainly something that, that we should try to avoid at all costs. So I wanted to then quickly, with the time remaining, come on to a question that has popped up in different forms from different people on the Q&A, which is assume there is no extension um, and I guess that we don't reach our kind of um, proposed fisheries agreement um, by the end of June. What does the timetable look like from the EU side? How do you ensure a deal is done with enough time for ratification, say? Um, what are the kind of key flashpoints that we should be looking out for um, over the, the second half of this year? Right. I mean, First, let's get to the first half and maybe we have one or two more rounds uh, this half. Uh, although I'm not so optimistic about round four, we hopefully make some progress. It won't be a, a breakthrough compared to what I've seen one person from La Repubblica asking uh, on the chat. Um, the high level meeting, let's see, we, we, we will need to see what is there to take stock of uh, before deciding how the high level meeting is organized and uh, and what is being discussed there. The European Council of June will no doubt be dominated by other issues than Brexit. 
I think there's no doubt about that. So then let's assume there's no extension of transition, which is what the UK government's position is. Then we come to the July 1st with a lot of progress still that must be made on level playing field, on a number of other issues, with very, very little time. So we'll have to negotiate over the summer, no doubt. There will be some negotiation weeks over the summer, I would think, uh, in that particular case. And it will have to happen at an accelerated pace to make indeed parallel progress in all the areas where, where, where we need to make progress on to conclude a, a new partnership. So on that positive note, I think that is the right note to end on. Um, I just want to say thank you very much, Stefan, for joining us. We are really, really pleased that you could make it and thank you for taking your time out to answer some of the quite detailed questions we got into. Thank you very much for watching everybody uh, and thank you for all of your questions. I apologise uh, if I didn't get to yours, but maybe if you um, attack Stefan on Twitter, he might uh, respond to your questions personally. Thank you very much. Finally, um, please do watch IFG live events in the future. We also have podcasts that are available on our website, so please do check them out. The video recording of this will be up and available for you to watch back if you enjoyed it that much. So that's all from us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.